Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. everyone had a terrific weekend. The Shakespeare-Oxford Fellowship Conference is quickly approaching, and we have a couple return guests to discuss the uniqueness of this event. Catherine Children, author of Shakespeare Suppressed and Art Collector, is here, as well as Ramon Jimenez, author of Shakespeare's Apprenticeship, and if you want to learn more about the conference, you can go to uh, ShakespeareOxfordFellowship.org. Uh, hi, uh, Catherine and Ramon. How are you? I'm well. Good to hear I'm you. I'm well. I'm, I'm fine. Good to talk to you, Mark. Yeah. yeah thank you for returning. Um, and Catherine. Yes. Yeah. And Ramon. Yes. Um, yeah, but, um, yeah, before we talk about the conference, um, we need to yeah, talk a little bit about the fellowship's publication of the Oxfordian Volume 23. Um, the contested year was a, a terrific compilation from the Oxford camp a few years ago, but uh, volume 23 is uh, a stellar collection of uh, essays. It it really shows the diversity of topic on the authorship controversy and the talents of your colleagues. Uh, Let's just spend a little bit of time talking about the Oxford, the Oxfordian Volume Twenty Three. Um, let's see. Both of you have contributions in it. Um, Ramon, well, do you Mark, want to start? Mark, Mark. The first thing to say about yeah. it is it's uh, it's twice as long as any uh, other issue of the Oxfordian over. 300 pages, 
Mm-hmm. It's, it's actually a book. And yeah. uh, it, well, it, it, it is excellent. Yes, it's a it's a journal um, trying to explore deeper the the case for Edward de Vere, seventeenth Earl of Oxford, as the true author of the Shakespeare plays. So um, we put out, it's been going on for twenty three years. This is our twenty third issue, and our biggest. And um, we uh, hope to attract uh, other scholars to it. Um, we can go over a few of the topics. Um, if yep. you like, both Ramon okay. and I are featured in it. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> and you know, maybe we could just <clears throat> uh, oh, say something about a couple of the other uh, chapters. Um, but, you know, j- just to begin, uh, you know, Shakespeare's sonnets are amazing. Uh pieces of literature uh, just by themselves, um, <clears throat> maybe they should be seen as separate works of art from the plays. Um, you know, at, after getting enchanted by, you know, the controversy, uh, when I saw that PBS uh, or the, fr- the Frontline special in 1989 and, and all the books I've read about the topic – since then, and talking with you two on you know, several shows, and the Alexanders, and um, you know, the, the sonnets really do present an entirely different personality profile of the author than what's in the traditional uh, biography. And you know, Ramon, you you, know, you are looking at the. Your chapter in Volume 23 does look at the introduction to the sonnets, and it really is awkward, disjointed, odd punctuation. The, the uh, I don't want to call it like the spacing. Of the type, it, it you know almost really looks like what Wendy finds in Jack's uh, <clears throat> stack of papers uh, in the Overlook Hotel, where all, all she sees is him writing down like the left side. Uh, it was like all night light and no play makes Mark a quirky host or you know, something to that effect. And then like the same thing written on the right side and uh, right down the middle of the page in different uh, shapes. What was you – know, we have a couple initials worked in there too. Explain how this <laughs> – Introduction is just so uh, um, odd in trying to understand what was being the the purpose of this uh, introduction, the the, the setup for it. It, I can see where people would uh, want to try to interpret something that may not be there. 
Well, it is the uh, the dedication you were speaking about. Yes. There isn't really any uh, introduction to the sonnets. And um, it is, uh, I don't know, about 14 lines. Uh, and it's uh, uh, a, a dedication. It's, it's not so unusual when you look at other dedications uh, printed uh, at the same time. Uh, the triangle, the triangles are very common in uh, other dedications. Capital letters are are very common, and until about 25 years ago, there was no uh, uh, suggestion that there was anything more to the dedication than a uh, a, a wish by the uh, by the publisher Thomas Thorpe, who who has signed it at the bottom with his initials TT uh, any more than uh, a, a wish uh, a, a thank you to a Mr. W.H. who supposedly uh, provided him with the manuscript of, of the sonnets uh, and uh, a, a wish that uh, he enjoy uh, eternal life such as uh, was promised in the sonnets to the fair youth by the author of the sonnets. And as I said, about 25 years ago, uh, John Rollett, one of our, uh, a, a, an English researcher in uh, Ipswich, he was not an Oxfordian at the time, according to his uh, account, but he was intrigued by uh, the language and the shape and the topography of the sonnets, and he began to analyze uh, the uh, the letters and the words, and he came up with a couple of conclusions, one of which was that uh, by uh, uh, selecting certain words out of the sonnets, uh, he found a message that said these sonnets all by E. Vere, the fourth, and then he uh, took the 144 letters of the sonnets and uh, arranged them in uh, various grids, that is, uh, uh, as anagrams, uh-huh. and found found a grid where he uh, uh, found a name uh, along one line of the uh, letters, the name Henry. And he constructed some other grids and, and found uh, the name Rosalie uh, in three different parts on on three different lines in three different two different directions, uh, and uh, concluded that uh, there was uh, there were these two uh, uh, messages: one about the author and the other about what almost everyone, uh, who everyone, most everyone uh, thinks is the fair youth of the sonnets, uh, Henry Rosalie. So uh, three or four other writers uh, joined him and uh, agreed with him and so on. And uh, in in my essay, I uh, uh, looked at at, at Rollett's uh, uh, research and his conclusions and 
concluded that he was mistaken, that uh, there, there was not a hidden message about the author and that there, uh, the uh, anagram solution did not uh, point to Henry Rosalie. And uh, the following article in the Oxfordian by John Cheyenne uh, uh, elaborates on John Rollett's findings and concludes that uh, there there was a, a message. There were two messages: one about the author and the other uh, about the identity of the fair youth. So that is the uh, situation at the moment. Uh, two different two different views of uh, of the sonnet's dedication. It's true that it's uh, it's awkwardly worded, but it seems pretty clear to me that uh, uh, Thomas Thorpe is thanking his associate, uh, William Hall, W.H., for providing the manuscript. But it's uh, it's not clear either way, I think. Uh, uh, I don't think either of us is going to be able to prove our our conclusions. So it's going to be a topic of discussion for some time, I think. Well, and you know, you, you, know, you do say that William Hall and Anthony Monday had a uh, they were colleagues at what uh, one of the print shops, and you know we also know that. Monday and Edward DeVere had a long-standing connection as well. So that's right. Yeah, there is that connection that can tie the sonnets back to DeVere instead of William Shakespeare. Yes. That that is one line of connection. True. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, no, I I just I really enjoyed that that one. I, I don't I don't want to spoil the whole. You know, want people to read uh, you know your whole work, but I I, I was really impressed with uh, your chapter. It, it, it was I, I can see why. Someone needed to step in and straighten things out with some of the wild speculation that could uh, be going on about the dedication. And um, okay, and, and, and Catherine, let's talk a little bit about you know, your. Well, first I just want to say that I think that the sonnet's dedication is very interesting in the sense Mm -hmm. of the phrase, um, all happiness in that eternity promised by our ever-living poet. And Mm ever-living poet totally suggests someone who has passed away. And um, the Earl of Oxford, of course, in 1609, when this was printed, had passed away five years previously. The uh, Stratford man was still living, and he had uh, mm-hmm. 
about seven more years to go. So it's it's intriguing, you know, that dedication for that purpose as well, as well as on the title page of Shakespeare's sonnet, the uh, the name Shakespeare is hyphenated, which you know a hyphen between shake and spear, indicating a. Mm-hmm. a perhaps a made-up name or a descriptive name of spear-shaking. So those are also uh, two key arguments, um, you know, against the Stratford man. Yeah. Okay. Good, uh, good, good points uh, you just brought up. And, to, and of course, really... the sonnets themselves, the great author... Oh pretty much reveals that he's a nobleman, you know, that's writing in the first person. Yeah. And uh, mm-hmm. he, he writes that his name has been stained somehow. He he, he writes as if he's uh, nearing death. You know, there's a lot of giveaways um, in, in the sonnets. And um, mm-hmm. I encourage our listeners, if they want to learn more about the great author, the most intimate Location, you know, you can find his him is uh, reading his sonnet. Oh yeah, it, it's uh, um, that part of the, the sonnet part of the canon is fascinating, and uh, I I don't want I don't get too sidetracked, but it, um. It's no, I I better not say too much. I I don't want to get, get give away all that's in your uh, uh, book as well. I, I just kind of leave it there. But you know, there mm-hmm. it's just uh, looking at uh, you know, seeing things differently than what our English teachers in high school uh, taught us about uh, the sonnets, if we even read them, uh, it, it becomes a, uh, more easier to understand uh, who is talking to who. But, okay, That's, I think they're kind of getting sidetracked into uh, too much other stuff there. Get, get back to your really interesting chapter on um, uh, Prospero, and you know, he's the uh, protagonist of um, The Tempest, which seems to be Shakespeare's um, you know, retirement uh play if you go by the traditional dating and yeah that becomes more apparent in the epilogue um but you know some people have thought that yeah you know, that is Prospero is Shakespeare himself addressing the uh, audience at the Globe Theater towards the end of his uh, career. Um, you are saying that Prospero is 
based on a real person. So take it from there, Catherine. Yes, and um, yeah, I I came across an article by an art historian named Sir Ernest Gombrich, and he was the one who came across reading a 16th century book about art um, that uh, this phrase referring to a man named Prospero Visconti, and he was. Um, like a man of letters, belletres. And um, he thought, oh, interesting name, Prospero, and very learned. And he looked into a little bit more on Prospero Visconti, and who was um, a native of Milan. Um, he had a library. He knew languages. He was a poet. He, he was kind of a Renaissance man for this period. And um, he thought, gee, this could be perhaps uh, who Shakespeare was basing his Prospero on. And um, so he he mentioned this, actually, to an English professor who was working on an edited version of The Tempest. And he showed him his evidence and said, hey, what do you think about this? And, well, I don't know what transpired, but um, he the editor chose not to use um, Gombrich's um, idea that, you know, possibility. So he pretty much dropped it at that point. But several years later, he came across a poem uh, that was written to Prospero Visconti, and he referred to villainy that had taken place in his family uh, that sort of, you know, uh, pretty much disrupted the line of the Dukes of Milan. And that in compensation, um, he is serving the muses. You know, So instead of maybe being part of a prominent uh, ruling family, he uh, has put aside, this aside and just focusing on the arts. So he thought that that really pointed to Prospero in the Tempest, Lord Prospero in the Tempest, who was uh, put in exile by his brother, by the villainy of his brother. So you see these parallels. And so I picked it, you know, I, in my article, go into more depth about what he found and, and bits and pieces more about Prospero Visconti. And the possibility that the Earl of Oxford may, you know, he's my Shakespeare candidate, that he may have actually met him. And so I look at mm -hmm. letters that Oxford wrote um, and also letters that other people wrote about Oxford during his tour. And it points to him actually having gone to Milan. And it also, if you read the plays, there are some details in the plays that are specific to Milan that were not generally known. So um, it's a very good chance that the two met. I, I can't prove it. Uh, there's still more research to be done there. Uh, there are more letters of Prospero Visconti that have not been looked at. So I'm, I'm hoping in future someone may pick up from here, from me, and, uh, you know, find a direct connection. But um, 
also, it, it appears, besides Prospero Visconti, I think that his family story of um, villainy was actually the case because he was a descendant of the original Dukes of Milan, the original family. Um, huh. And about a hundred or so years after, uh, it changed families. The Duke of Milan changed to the Sforza family. And there it, there could have been a little bit of villainy in that process. So I think that perhaps that's what this poet was referring to. So, you know, there are these parallels. Um, we don't know exactly what the villainy was, but it, it could very well been, have, have been the change in families of the Duke de Mamoan. And of course, okay. uh, Prospero and the Tempest was the exiled Duke of Milan. So, um, who, who, just Catherine, like the did you say... had a huge library. Uh, Prospero Visconti had a library. Uh, they were both famous. They both studied the liberal arts. They were noblemen, you know, and the name Prospero was unusual. So I think that they may have met, actually. they, You know, they were alive at the same time, and Oxford took a grand tour of Europe, especially Italy, so it's a, it's a good chance. Um, but I think there are other influences as well for Prospero in The Tempest, and that would be John Dee, Dr. John Dee. Uh, the Earl of Oxford knew Dr. Dee, and Dr. Dee... Um, delved into the supernatural, and he tried to draw up spirits. And we actually have in the British Museum, we have his spirit mirror where he would try and evoke spirits. So the Earl of Oxford may have known about that, may have watched him do it, who knows. Um, but there was definitely an Oxford and D, D, Dr. D connection. And, um, of course, Prospero, in the Tempest uh, communicates and evokes uh, the Ariel, who is his spirit. So we we have that. Um, one connection that is not uh, specific to Dr. D or to Prospero Visconti is the exile that Prospero experienced. Well, the Earl of Oxford experienced an exile. Um, in 1581, he was thrown in the tower because he impregnated one of the Queen Elizabeth's attendants. And um, so he, they were imprisoned. Uh, he, he was imprisoned for three months and then was released, but he was not allowed to see the queen uh, or visit her court, not for at least two years. So that was, for him, a form of exile. So he may have put a little bit of himself in it, um, in, in the character of Prospero. And, of course, he was a magician of the theater. Uh-huh. Catherine, did you say that uh, there are uh, Visconti letters that might be seen? Yes. Um, in, in 1905, um, someone published several of them, and I could not find an Earl of Oxford reference, but um, recently, I think in the last uh, 15 or so years, someone wrote a dissertation on Prospero Visconti, and he says that there are some letters, I believe, in Milan or Florence of Prospero. I have it in my article. 
um, that have not been looked at. He saw some of them, um, and um, he, but there are other ones. So I think that it really, if, if anyone has knowledge of Italian and Latin and even German, um, it would be great. And if they had access to these archives, um, they might find a really good, you know, something really special. And there was also, he refers to a manuscript that has been lost for over a hundred years that would have given Prospero's Visconti's accounts of various parties and events that happened among the nobility. That one, one would be really wonderful to look at to see if Oxford, you know, what it was included. So, yeah, there's there's so much more research to be done about the Earl of Oxford. But um, every time you, you know, want to make a connection between Oxford and a character in a Shakespeare play, you you can always find it. It's amazing. Right. But you, right. Yeah, and, and, and Catherine, you, you were just talking about the uh, – this Conti family, and they did have a long connection to uh, you know, the arts. Um, one of Prospero's uh, like uncles, or you know, like the pre, you know, someone from the you know recent you know pre previous generation. Uh, was an editor of uh, Petrarch's uh, poems. Yes, and yes. he, yeah, he they was a courtier, with... nobleman courtier, and uh, greatly interested in the arts. And he yeah. had a, a big library as well. So the the one that uh, Prospero Visconti had may have he may have built upon it. Yeah, and and they and the family also worked with Bramante. Uh, so you can see why. Um, Edward De Vere, if we you know we want to single him out as you know, the real author of the Shakespeare plays, um, why he would uh, gravitate towards the Visconti family, nobility, uh, similar interests in the arts. Yes, I think. I think it's, there's a very good chance there is some letter or document uh, saying that they met. I, I'm, it just has, it's just waiting to be found somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Let Let okay. me uh, point out here that uh, uh, this this new research of Catherine's is is just another example of a strong connection between Oxford and uh, the Shakespeare canon, and it's it's part of the uh the the strongest body of evidence that Oxford was Shakespeare was his trip to Italy and mm-hmm. uh all the plays that are set in Italy all the uh details of geography and uh local customs uh the language and so on and and this is just another example of uh close connection uh between uh Oxford Italy and Shakespeare, and of course, there's no evidence that uh, Shakespeare of Stratford ever ever left England or knew Italian or had any interest in Italian things. 
Yes, and he wouldn't have been able to learn Italian from his local grammar school. So, you know, <laughs> so we right. wonder how he seemed to be uh, supposedly familiar with Italian language. So, right, right, just right. another. Well, the the, or, yeah. the Orthodox scholars speculate that he uh, he picked up all this knowledge of Italy and the Italian language from. Uh, Italian merchants in bar in uh, pubs in in London. Yes, the great universities, right? <laughs> <laughs> of the Mermaid Tavern. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Okay. So while we're uh, still talking about. Uh, Italy's influence on. Um, you know Shakespeare or Edward de Vere. Um, another one of the articles in uh, the the Oxfordian Volume Twenty Three um, covers um, the Decameron. I thought that was um, a really interesting article uh, or, or chapter. Um, it was Devere supposedly translated that well-known um Late medieval Italian uh, Italian um, work, and he translated it like five years before the sonnets. So, Ramon, it would translating the Decameron fit into the apprenticeship that you wrote your book about. Uh, uh, We see Shakespeare writing a a lot of drafts over the years kept kept going back to to, um, to say Richard III and Rewriting it until he got it to where he he wanted it. What do do, do you think translating um, one hundred Italian stories would be part of that apprenticeship? Well, uh, not that particular translation, I don't think. But uh, it's pretty clear that Oxford. Uh, was interested in in translating uh, works from foreign languages from an early age. It's been pretty well established that he is the actual translator of Ovid's uh, Metamorphosis that Mm -hmm. uh, was published as a translation by his uncle, uh, Arthur Golding, uh, in the late 1560s. So... um, and that would have been done, well, Oxford was a preteen. 
uh, when uh, it, it seems that this took place. Now, according to Wagaman, uh, he, he's the author of uh, the article you're referring to, the uh, did, did Oxford translate Boccaccio's Decameron? And he points out that a, a translation, an English translation of of the Decameron was was registered in the Stationers Register in 1580. Uh, at the time, Oxford was uh, about 30. Uh, it turns out that uh, there was no uh, actual publication that emanated from that registration. The Stationers Register was a a publicly maintained list uh, of, uh, of books that uh, uh, London publishers paired for were, were planning to translate, uh, uh, planning to publish. Uh, publishing was uh, extremely uh, closely regulated at that time, and the stationers or publishers had to uh, adhere to various requirements. Uh, as to uh, what what they were going to publish, and, their, and the and the script, the manuscripts had to be uh, reviewed by officials. But as Wagaman points out, uh, a translation in, into English of the Decameron was not published until sixteen, I think it's sixteen twenty. Was that was that what you said? Yeah, sixteen twenty. It was almost like forty years after. Right. The translation was done. Right. And he presents uh, a wealth of evidence of all kinds that uh, that translation uh, was done by Oxford. Um, uh, the, uh, the publication of 1620 doesn't identify the translator. So it, it's, it's not clear who, uh, who did it. The orthodox speculation has been that it was John Florio, but as Wagaman points out, it was a it was a, a different kind of uh, work than Florio was uh, had, had been translating, and there and there there aren't any characteristics in it that would lead lead one to uh, think it was Florio, but there are dozens of words and phrases and. Uh, ideas and uh, changes in the text that uh, seem to point to Oxford as a very convincing uh, and, and well-written uh, piece. Yeah. It, um, I thought it was a very informative chapter um you can see you know, uh, Wagaman uh, does make the point of uh, the use of alliteration in the translations. It, it seems like he, he, De Vere could have been starting to come into his own as a uh, poet, and then just a few years later, he's going to start the sonnet series, you know, 150 
some sonnets. They, I'm. I never really thought about it, but you you can maybe see some kind of evolution of an artist, and then you throw in you know Venus and Adonis and Lucrece in there as well. It's really that 1580s to 1590s uh, is really one of those um, areas of research that seems to be blossoming for the fellowship. Well, I have to agree with you. Uh, and uh, each, each issue of the Oxfordian, we, we see some additional research and some uh, other aspect of, of the authorship question that uh, we were unfamiliar with. Well, I think you're filling in the gap. I, I, I just really um, – I think your group is putting together – Um, what the a timeline in those lost years that the Stratfordians really can't fill. You're doing a great job, John. And and we also it's need a very to, rich uh, topic. I mean, it's yeah. it's not only you know surveying the life of the Stratford man. You know, and trying to understand, you know, what his role was, and uh, knowing the fact his facts, uh, but it's also the incredibly illustrious life of the, the Earl of Oxford, and um, there, there's just it's so rich. Um, any little topic, um, any little aspect of it, you can just write a whole book about. <laughs> so. Uh, mm-hmm. It's it's, oh, no, it's I, a very intellectually satisfying issue, <laughs> um, in general. So. No, no, no. I I agree, and you know we probably need to spend a little bit of time talking about the Children portrait. Um. You know, Maybe some people in the audience, maybe in such, you know, are English listeners. Um, you know, they might be familiar with the rainbow portrait and has all the little ears and eyes all over Queen Elizabeth's um, outfit she's wearing. It really made her sound like she was a Facebook fact checker. But in in, in the portrait um, that first of all, uh, maybe you want to tell us about you you saw the portrait and what drew you into um, acquiring the portraits and you know, we 
ask a few questions uh, from, from there. Yeah, I, I was interested in Oxford's portraits, for, have been for, for several years, because um, there were really only two or three, really, uh, that were known, and uh, a person of his high status, uh, there should be more. So I pretty much figured out that there's got to be more out there, but just not identified as the Earl of Oxford, um, just, you know, a portrait of a gentleman. And, of course, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of Elizabethan and Jacobean portraits with of ladies and gentlemen, and children even, uh, with no identity, because they they didn't usually write on there. Um, and then also the artist would, would rarely sign his his initials or anything. So um, so I figured there has to be more, and um, so I, you know, I kept my eyes open, and I would look at, through auction catalogs, and I finally came across one, and it he he's I, I put it on the cover of my book Shakespeare Suppressed. Uh, he's a very extravagantly dressed um, nobleman. And uh, with a tuft of hair over his uh, forehead um, and, a, and a rose in his ear, and it just—it very much fits the personality, uh, the known personality of the Earl of Oxford. And he wears very wide ruff, which he was sort of slightly ridiculed by a, another writer for, for wearing a deep, wide ruffs. Um, but I think that in his mind he was being somebody of, of fashion and probably European clothes. And Elizabeth Wagaman uh, goes into detail about it. I, I, and um, she even goes into uh, what she thinks was kind of a, a, a ref. The, there's a a brown curtain in the background, and she seems to think that that was something of an invitation to, to discover what's behind it. So I thought that was an, an intriguing interpretation. Okay, and, and this portrait was in the custody of Oxford's granddaughter, so there seems to be some kind of – like. This just wasn't coming out of uh, just anyone's house, and they were claiming, "Oh, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah." But believe me, this is from uh, the Ox uh, Oxford's house. It, it's like there, there was, you know, like uh, Rick on Pawn Stars would you know, say, you know, let's see the documentation, like the chain of custody of ownership. But that's uh, that 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 seems to be proven. Well, I I, I traced you know, who who had owned the uh, picture previously was uh, Lord Thurso, his family. So I, I you know you can look in Burke's peerage and you can see the family connections, and I was able to trace it all the way yes to the Earl of Oxford's granddaughter, um, the the daughter of. His daughter Elizabeth Vere and uh, Stanley, uh, the Earl of Derby. 
So uh, the Stanley family. So um, I was able to trace it that far. I mean, I can't guarantee that that's where it, how it came, but um, there's definitely a connection there. Um, but uh, real documentary evidence actually is the hat that he's wearing. He has a hat with pearl and gold buttons, and a black hat. And if you look in the Queen's wardrobe of robes, a logbook, which exists, there's a few of them. In 1581, July, the Queen gave the Earl of Oxford, this was just right when he came out of the tower in 1581, um, she gave him a black hat with pearl and gold, you know, on, on the hat. So almost certainly that's what we're talking about. So I think that that's just right off the bat that, that's proof that this indeed is the Earl of Oxford. Uh, besides his uh, wearing French clothing, uh, he was known to wear French clothing, and this is, has kind of a French uh, rough. So, yes. Um. And also, okay. uh, also, Elizabeth Wagaman points out in the article, uh, or, or publishes, a, uh, a portrait of Oxford's half-sister, Catherine, mm-hmm. a little older than he was, and the resemblance is quite uh, clear between the two. Yes. And, and there are many, many, there's a lot of other evidence that, that points to Oxford. The, uh, you know, the coloring of the clothing, the, uh, uh, I was amazed at the, uh, the luxurious, Materials uh, in in uh, shown in the painting, uh, uh, expensive uh, taffeta, for instance, and uh, 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 a lot of attention to the uh, the fabrics and the connections between uh, items in it from Italy, uh, from France, and from England, it, and it, it really. Uh, it, it really presents a uh, a man of the world, a man of the Renaissance, and uh, with uh, 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 with with connections and influences uh, in, from three countries. It's it's a wonderful article. I, I urge everyone to get hold of the of the copy and read it. Okay, uh, how do they do that? Well, it's available on Amazon. Uh, as are uh, the other Oxfordian editions. It's uh, $15. I expect to get mine tomorrow, uh, so I haven't seen the, the actual print copy yet. And if one is a member of the Shakespeare Oxford Fellowship, one can see it online uh, right now, as well as all the other issues of the Oxfordian back to uh uh, 1999 or whenever it was started, so it's it's readily available and it's not expensive. And as I say, it's uh, it's the size of a book. Well, and it's quality, um, thought-provoking uh, compilations of you know, research that make up this book. Uh, Lots of these medieval or early Renaissance uh, 
uh, paintings with um, people with uh, the signet rings on their middle finger. Uh, that that was an interesting aspect for uh, 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 part of the painting of the Lancastrian red rose that uh, Catherine was talking about. You know the gr- uh, green leaves, and of course, yeah, you know, uh, their laurel. Uh, leaves and it all does fit together. So. Yes, and my uh, talk um, in the coming conference, um, you know, which is October eighth and ninth, uh, which anybody can sign up for, it's free. Um, I'm going to be talking about a possible new portrait of the Earl of Oxford's sister Mary that I came across. Um, I, I think I think it's her. So, um, and as of as of now, we really don't know what she looks like. So, um, I'm anxious to give that presentation. Okay. And okay. Um, since we're you know we've kind of moved over to the uh, speakers at the conference, they will be. Um, a lot will be uh, uh, presenting over Zoom, and people can watch it. You know, it's just after lunch, um, well, for most of those day, uh, those what, October eighth and ninth, you can just sit there in your jammies and you know, sign up on the uh, Shakespeare. Shakespeare Oxford Fellowship dot org uh, website and just sit, sit there and watch it at, at your leisure. And you have a number of uh, terrific speakers. What um, uh, Keir Cutler sounds like he has an interesting topic. Like why we aren't. Um, questioning the Stratfordians. I forget what he was going to. Um, yeah, why was I never told this? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, why? Yeah, there we are. You know, back to all this cover-up uh, stuff. Like, why? Why weren't we told it? You know, why? Does this information, where um, you know, we, you two made a really good case about Oxford, the Earl of Oxford was the author of the play. Why is there such an emphasis on not allowing that discussion to uh, go public? Well, that's true. That is the latest scandal in the authorship question. Why are academic uh, Shakespearean scholars uh, not not only uh, contesting our research, but refusing to discuss it, refusing to publish it, 
refusing to allow us to present at their conferences. And uh, also uh, publishers of Shakespeare plays, books about Shakespeare, they and uh, journals about Shakespeare. They won't. They won't publish any anyone who contests the uh, Shakespeare uh, of Stratford's authorship of the canon. And that is the real conspiracy. They call us conspiracy theorists, but the real conspiracy is among the hundreds and hundreds of uh, Shakespeare scholars who refuse to discuss this question or allow us to uh, in, in, into their uh, different media outlets. It is quite a scandal. Okay. Well, yes, and know. meanwhile, it's really the people who have dropped the Stratford Man model um, who are making all the advances in research, and I think that this this issue will, will, is a good example of it. Well, uh, you always have a home here at Nightlight to discuss. <laughs> we might be your only outlet. Well, you know, besides Ramona's show on uh, Saturday, but um, yeah, the two of us will keep keep, keep giving you a platform because th uh, this is a fascinating subject as well as um, it, 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 it's just really ca captivating. I think you over the years of you know us doing these discussions you've made such a uh, insightful presentation of just fact after fact uh, uh, and um and Shakespeare identified which was written by J. Thomas Looney in the uh, you know, uh, 1920, um, and the centenary edition was edited by James Warren. He's going to be a speaker um, at this year's conference. Um, it, Shakespeare identified base, basically uh, was the foundation of the Shakespeare Oxford Fellowship, correct? Yes, yes. Okay. Yes, uh, and then the organization that was formed in the following year was called the Shakespeare Fellowship. Yeah, and his James Warren's uh, topic is um, the greatest deception in literary history, a contrarian's view of 1623. You know, it's, I think Nightlight is frequently contrarian. But, but um, what James did for the 100th anniversary of Shakespeare identified was really a, a terrific achievement um i really like that book as well 
like to get him as a guest at some point. Yes, good idea. But he, he you know, I, and I, I, um, I think one of the most memorable statements. One of the uh, Loney's uh, most um, uh, impacting uh, statements for me was when he he was saying, and just uh, a younger author really isn't going to have the life experience to pull off writing this. Uh, like the early uh, the sonnets from the 1590s the more mature uh, like say uh, Hamlet or you know King Lear like one of those um, more mature uh, plays um, isn't going to be done by someone yeah, not that long out of college. You, you know, you have to have a number of life experiences, and you know, probably are going to be in your uh, maybe later forties or fifties before you can write anything really profound. And uh, he, he, there are a few uh, examples of you know Dante and Defoe. And I thought that was just a really excellent point that was brought up in Shakespeare Identified. That one really stuck with me. Well, he was a very deep man. I mean, a very mm-hmm. deep feeling person. And uh, he was able to put himself in other people's shoes uh, very convincingly. And he that's how he came up with all these wonderful characters. Yeah. yeah. I just, it just really seems that you need to observe life a lot for a longer time to create um you know, these masterpieces, you know, world masterpieces that um, are, are still read 400 years later. And performed. Yes. Really? I think you're, I think your group is really on to, um, Amazing insights into rewriting history, explaining how uh, what what was covered up and what we need to know. Is there um, any new uh, research going on that? You'd like to discuss, or you know, what what's that one thing that you would like to find that would um, 
make the uh, the clearest connection that uh, De Vere was the author of the plays and sonnets? Well, there is uh, there there are uh, I would say maybe a dozen different places where uh, further research might really make the solid connection between Oxford and the Shakespeare canon. One of them is uh, an alleged manuscript of Twelfth Night that uh, was referred to in the uh, 18th century. It, it apparently was extant in the 18th century, and uh, uh, a, uh, a literary scholar uh, wrote that he was going to uh, publish it. But he never did, and no one can find the manuscript. But he did describe it as uh, a, uh, a play about a courtier who was uh, unhappy with the uh, uh, emergence of a, another courtier, uh, Hatton, at, at uh, Elizabeth's court, which uh, pretty much describes r roughly the plot of Twelfth Night. So that that's a very close connection. And as it happens, uh, um, Michael Delahoyd has edited from an Oxfordian perspective uh, a, uh, an edition of Twelfth Night, which is about to be published, and he is going to be speaking uh, on Saturday at the conference. He's going to spend about a half hour talking about uh, his, uh, he calls it, Epiphanies whilst editing an Oxfordian Twelfth Night. So that's something that uh, we're all looking forward to. Uh, that, that, to me, is... Uh, the uh, the most likely, if if that manuscript can be found, that would be uh, a solid connection between Oxford and and the Shakespeare canon. I think that would settle the question. But as I said, there are a dozen different places, uh, ge geographic places and literary places, uh, where that connection could possibly be made with uh, with more research. Okay. All right. So, um, is there well, anything? Well, you know, the Holy Grail would be oh. to find a Shakespeare play manuscript, which right. does not exist. So. Yeah, with you know, um, Edward de Vere's signature on, like the byline. Yeah. Well, just his handwriting. Right. Any, yeah. you know, yeah. We have we know what his handwriting is like. There's uh, several letters of his that have survived, so it would be no problem to, you know, match them. So we just need a, a play manuscript or or a page of a play manuscript. Um, but as as far as we know, there are none. Uh, I, th that's just the. You know, basically, that that that's the holy grail to uh, find. But 
you know, you think that everything else is pretty much in place. We just need that one final piece of the puzzle. Yes, yes, I think I think so. And uh it will only take uh two or three uh well known Shakespeare scholars uh who are convinced to begin a uh, what I uh, anticipate would be an avalanche of of research into Oxford by uh, the Shakespeare academic establishment uh once once uh, there is some proof or some close proof, close to proving uh, of Oxford authorship, uh, I think uh, it's going to open up an uh, enormous uh, field of research for all these Shakespeare scholars who've been uh, inspecting Shakespeare plays minutely for decades now and are, and are running out of material. This is going to be a, a, a great boon of, uh, of research once, uh, once the paradigm shifts. Okay. And I, I know uh, you two have uh, some work to do and uh, prep uh, you know, for the upcoming uh, conference. And I want to keep you up. Um, you know, to or, or keep keep you away from that uh, for too long. Um, it, is there anything else you wanted to cover, or uh, is that uh, uh, good enough for you for the evening? You can give yeah. your uh, yeah. websites and pl- plug anything and the uh, fellowship, and you know uh, we could. You know, and I can uh, let you get back to work. All right. All right. Uh, I would just encourage uh, listeners to uh, look at the Shakespeare Oxford uh, Fellowship website. Uh, there are many articles and all of our newsletters, all all, all of our Oxfordian journals uh, are available there. And it's a... Uh, 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 a site uh, that you can you can spend a couple hours more mm-hmm. uh exploring and of course the uh the conference uh next month that would be something interesting to tune into and uh and one can join the fellowship uh for a small amount of money and uh be a subscriber and and receive the Oxfordian and our quarterly newsletter and even uh, come to one of our in-person conferences once uh, once they resume. Okay, and, and, and this one is just uh, you know, the 2021 is just uh, conferences uh, can can be viewed over Zoom, so um, you can be you know, safe at home and um, just ha- have. Uh, two great days of listening to um, captivating lectures. Exactly. Okay. And uh, Ramon, what's uh, the name of your book again? Oh, Shakespeare's Apprenticeship. 
the first uh, five plays that Oxford wrote, teenager. Okay. Um, and that could be uh, found at Amazon. Um, yes. Yes. Okay. And, Catherine, how, how about all your uh, website and contact information and um, yeah, uh, you can Anything go to shakespearesuppressed.com, and you can contact me through the site. And also I give the I provide the introduction to my book, Shakespeare Suppressed, The Uncensored Truth About Shakespeare and His Works. And um, it's available on Amazon. Or you can get the ISBM number and, and Ramon's book, too. You can uh, request it at your public library and have them buy it, too. So uh, there's lots of ways to 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 see our books. Okay, cool. So uh, and I think uh, both of you had great chapters in the um, volume 23, and I'm looking forward to this year's conference again. And I just wanted. Uh, Thank you, Catherine and Ramon, for being our guests tonight. And um, yeah, I think, uh, and th- thank you, Barbara, for producing the show. And uh, I hope everyone enjoyed the show. And we'll see. Um, I'll see everyone Tuesday, and Barbara will see everyone on Monday for her show. And thank you again, and talk to you soon.